This is Mornings with Simi. CMHC is now forecasting a decline in average house prices in Canada of 9 to 18% in the coming 12 months. That's pretty substantial, right? In the next 12 months there, that was president of the Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation, Evan Siddall, speaking to a federal committee earlier this week. It's a pretty bleak look out there for homeowners, and there is a real concern that we may see an increasing number of foreclosures that could result from that. We wanted to talk more about that possibility, taking a look at the housing market across the country. Joining us now is real estate market analyst. Analyst Dane Idle to talk us through what's happening. Dane, thanks for being here. No problem, Timmy. It's absolutely my pleasure. Uh, tell me about your company first. What is it that you look at and analyze? Yeah, Itel Insights is a very unique uh, company for the real estate market. Uh, we actually take a, a very analytical approach. We do use technical indicators, pricing thresholds to identify when a market you know has broken a trend and where it will result itself in the upcoming years, given how that market cycle is projected to play out. Right. So what are you seeing then in the Canadian industry right now? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I mean, uh, we, we have been calling for a, a fall off on the major markets for the past couple of years. Vancouver's been proven correct. Toronto's uh, held up a little bit longer. Um, but, you know, uh, across Canada right now, with uh, the federal government giving it $2,000 in Greater Vancouver, that's just enough money to keep going broke. Uh, we have been predicting uh, an economic recession that uh, would be largely led uh, through the real estate market, especially here in Vancouver, with real estate prices being so high and being such a, a major uh, mark of people's equities worth. So given what's happening right now, then do you foresee what price drops, foreclosures for the Vancouver market? Yeah, absolutely. What's what's kind of interesting, uh, our, our first published article was back in 2017. At that time, the market had just peaked at 1.830 in May of 2017, which was the all-time high. Um, we had explained that uh, the, the uptrend had been broken, and, and we would be testing this market for a prolonged period of time, not just three years like we usually see in a market cycle, but about a five- to seven-year range, s- similar to the 90s. And in that same article, not only did we identify the top, but we identified where the likely bottom would be. Uh, we said in 2019, prices would test 1.5. And they, in fact, did test 1.5 in February of 2019. Um, we also stated that the bottom would not show up until 2021. Uh, what's interesting about that is CIBC just came out a couple of weeks ago confirming that. And similar, CMHC just came out the other day saying, yeah, 2021 will be the bottom. So our, our unique approach to real estate uh, forecasting is, is absolutely uh, so far precise. Right. What does the bottom look like, though? When you say bottom in 2021, price-wise, what does that look like? Sure. Yeah. So the bottom likely in 2021, well, in 2020, this year, we will test the 1.4 million threshold on an average sale basis. Um, so not all markets inside of Greater Vancouver are created equal. Some markets are already have already been down forty plus percent, while some markets inside are you know they're only down twelve percent. Mm-hmm. So it, it you know it's it's not a whole wholesome approach. But overall on Greater Vancouver, currently prices are at one point six zero, so we're down roughly two hundred and thirty thousand from the peak. Over the upcoming months, um, before we do bottom, this market will test one point four million, which is an additional two hundred thousand dollars lost um, from people's equity. Right. But Dan, I think a lot of people would also point out $1.4 million is still a heck of a lot of money for a house. Absolutely. Um, and, and that is Greater Vancouver. I mean, it is a metropolis. Uh, I, I, you know, a lot of people that were extremely positive in 2019 are now you know, forecasting a 50% drop. Uh, we don't see it that way. 
in 2019, uh, what everybody seemed to miss out on was it was stress test mitigation. Prices were down at that 1.5 million threshold, which was essentially 19% off of the peak. So in 2018, at the beginning, people, uh, the purchasing power was slashed 20%. So the prices had to come down 20% just to mitigate that. So there was some pent-up demand. And once that was uh, relinquished, there, there was no solid demand to hold this market up. And that was pre-coronavirus. You add coronavirus on top of that. And to your point, we, we could see even a, an additional leg lower. And, and we have stated that if 1.40 does not hold, then we'll be looking for 1.225. Um, what's interesting, again, about that is CMHC has similar forecasts now. So their 9% mm-hmm. down would re- bring to 1.45. Their 18% down would bring you to 1.31. So maybe they checked their website and uh, started to follow along because we have led this market right from 2017. Right. But when you talk about prices getting down like that, what I've noticed in the last six, seven months was that if you priced your product right, if you priced it aggressively, that right. that thing sold quickly. So d- is there also opportunity here then for people who haven't been able to get into the market to say, listen, if prices are going to come down, that's my time to get into the market? Totally. I, I mean, I, I am a long-term believer in Greater Vancouver. We're just not a, a, a strong proponent of where it is currently. We would like to see average prices coming down and the inventory go up. So in the detached market, you're just below 4,000 active listings during kind of the 2018 when, when the inventory was higher. We had seen roughly 7,000. So that's where we anticipate the market to go back to. So, you know, over the next, call it, remaining portion of the year and into 2021, what you'll see is an average sale price across the board, usually lower, and uh, more inventory to choose from. So, it, the, you know, the, the ball will be squarely in the buyer's court, right. where over the past year, it seemed like it was being batted back and forth, where, you know. When, when you yeah. talk about foreclosures and, and potential yeah. problems like that, who do you think is most vulnerable? Is it people who bought at the peak of the market? Absolutely. So if, if you bought in 2007, let's say 2003, I mean, you've already lived through your recessions or market cycles and a couple of them. So really the people that are going to be in a challenge here is the folks that bought 2015, 2016, 2017. So if you chase the market up, you're going to have some challenging times. So let's just take the detached home example. Uh, in 2016, uh, January, average sale price was 1825000 Let's say we're correct and around 1.4 in 2021. That will mean that you've lost on average $425,000 in equity. Not only that, but in the first six, seven years of mortgage payments, you're essentially making interest-only payments. So you're paying off very little principal. So it it will be challenging times. Um, The bank will will end up foreclosing on, on a number of properties. And uh, the condo market is a whole other beast to itself. Yeah, just briefly, let's touch on that a little bit, because we know that so much of what we saw in the craziness of the market a few years ago was condo buildings, pre-sales, all of that. Uh, Do you think we're going to see as many buildings come online in the next couple of years, or do you think developers are rethinking this right now? Yeah, I I, I mean, the developers are definitely rethinking it. There's been a lot of projects that, you know, were supposed to break down that definitely got put on hold. Um, Those that were kind of already in the midst of construction and had pre-sold, those investors are, are, are going to see some challenging times again. Uh, I remember, and I'm sure you do as well, the complaints that were coming that you know investors were buying multiple units and it wasn't fair because the average person couldn't get right. into the investment market. And now those investors are going to be on the hook. Um, so we're forecasting a 30% uh, condo drop from the 750000 peak during 2018 
Currently, we're at 660 average sale price, and we see that market going down to 525,000 by 2022. So it does lag the detached market by a bit. And the story of the condo market will really be the inventory. I mean, you'd like you correctly right. point out, you're going to have an onslaught of all these pre-sold buildings coming to completion that will be put online and will be available for rent. Not only that, but then you'll have a, 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 an expansive amount of brand new inventory. The older buildings will kind of just fizzle and die. Um, and you'll have to see some aggressive price reductions to even get any interest in showings hmm. in the older buildings, especially given the insurance concerns that the market has seen recently. Well, we'll see. Okay, Dane, I'm sure we'll be talking to you again. Thanks so much for your time. Absolutely. My pleasure. That is Dane Idle, the founder of Idle Insights. They're a real estate market analyst company talking about uh, predicted problems upcoming in the housing market, uh, predicted by Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation now, and certainly something that market analysts are seeing as well. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, let's check in with Nikki Reitmeyer on this Thursday morning. And boy, do we have an interesting topic to discuss today, one that I'm sure people will have thoughts on. Good morning, Nikki. Good morning, Simi. Yeah, talking about well, what it's going to be like when you go back to a business again, a, a salon, a restaurant. I was thinking about this yesterday that, Simi, I know you said you have an upcoming hair appointment. I'm so excited. Isn't it going to be strange, though, when you go back and so many things that you would usually do when you go to the salon have changed? I mean, typically they would offer you a tea or a coffee. I wonder yes. if they'll still be doing that. No. Even just sitting in the waiting room and nope. flipping through those old magazines. Not doing right? that either. Yeah, she was very clear. They explained. They were lovely about it. They phoned me and explained the whole thing to me to let me know how it was going to be. Uh, don't show up until like the exact time of your appointment. And if you're early, then wait outside, socially distancing from other people, essentially. There is no more waiting room, they said. Did they mention to you on the phone at all that there would be a COVID-19 surcharge, an extra fee that you'd have to pay? No, they did not. And I know this has become a hot button issue. I had a bunch of emails on this yesterday when we kind of just touched on the topic. And I know that Global's been doing some stories on this as well. Yeah, there's actually a business called Zazu Salon up in North Vancouver. So, you know, a hair salon. And they're charging an extra seven fifty five on their services. Owner Bruce Peters spoke to Global and he said that there's been some mixed reactions from his customers. I know that some people are gonna be annoyed by that. It's not gonna be it's not I don't think it's gonna be well received. Some clients are not receiving it well. Some clients are going, It doesn't matter, I totally understand. I thought it was gonna be more. What I don't understand about this is why single it out? Do you know what I mean? Like if a restaurant, I know some restaurants are doing this as well. Why not just raise your prices, even if it's temporarily, uh, and just don't say that it's a COVID-19 surcharge? Because I think that gets people's backs up. Oh, totally. Yeah, no, I was wondering the same thing. I mean, why not just you know, kind of bump up your price a little bit? Nobody's really going to notice that much. You can say, you know, we had some extra operating costs and this is why we've yeah. had to do that if you did need to justify it in the end. Because tacking on that extra charge, nobody wants to get taxed extra on anything. And even you heard the owner of the salon there saying, you know, some people have been supportive of it and uh, uh, there's other not people are not so much. 
I had an email from Rhonda. Let me just read this to you quickly, Nikki. Rhonda had written me and said, regarding COVID surcharge, no, she said. We will ask this question before we choose a restaurant. Uh, Really, what are they charging a surcharge for, she said. They should have been clean. If it's for cleaning, I think that's the excuse that a lot of people have used. She said they should have been cleaning to the fullest extent to begin with. And if they weren't, well, then they should have been shut down a long time ago. And she said, sounds harsh. She realizes that. But she said, I expected top cleaning prior to COVID-19. Uh, she said, so by the surcharge, she said, the restaurant is telling me that you were never really that clean to begin with. So if I pay more now, she said, you will be. She said, just doesn't make sense to her. She's not going to pay it. <laughs> That's pretty smart, though, isn't I know. it? She's right. Absolutely, she's right. Why weren't these places clean top and yeah. bottom beforehand? Why do you have to buy extra, extra, extra cleaning product now? Yeah, and I mean, as far as I, I've also heard them use the excuse, we need to buy more uh, PPE to supply to our, our customers and to our staff. But I mean, seven fifty five for a disposable mask and gloves, That's... you're getting ripped off somewhere along the line here. I mean, there's no way those are worth seven fifty five. Or at least have the conversation on the phone with the person beforehand and say, hey, you know, you have to bring in your own mask and gloves or, you know, you have to buy one when you get to the store. I mean, even that is something that I think is a, is a little bit more reasonable. I think also people, some people feel that, listen, I've done my darndest to try to support businesses, people who are still working, right, uh, have worked really hard to try to support local businesses that have stayed open. That's been a real mantra, I think, through this whole situation. And then when businesses do reopen, if some of them are now charging you extra, I don't think that sits well with a lot of people. Yeah, and ultimately it will decide, you know, it'll come down to those people whether or not they want to pay the service charge or not, and if they want to go to that establishment or not. Yeah. I mean, it's really going to be the, the public that dictates whether businesses are able to get away with this, and some people may really support a local business that does this sort of thing, and it'll work out fine for that business. I think for other people, they may choose to perhaps go to a different hair salon and then become a long-term client of that new salon. Oof. So it's certainly risky, but what really concerns me here is not so much what the owner is doing as far as how it affects his bottom line, but how it affects his staff or her staff. Because, you know, as someone who's worked in the service industry myself, I know that if you go tacking on extra charges or extra fees, your wait staff or your hairstylists, they're not going to get the same tip That's that they possible. would have gotten yeah. from the customer. Because when the bill comes, if there's an extra fee involved, a lot of people will go price accordingly. So, yeah, and they're going to take it out on the server, aren't they? That is so true. So, this is what we're asking you today: Are you okay with paying a COVID nineteen surcharge? at a business that you go to, whether it's a store, salon, or restaurant. Call our buzz line 604-331-2899 or email me, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Costs are significant for business at a time where they don't have a lot of operating cash on hand. They have been already struggling for weeks now, and so it is entirely possible that some of these costs could be passed on to consumers. Okay, that's Vancouver, Greater Vancouver Board of Trade CEO Bridget Anderson talking about the idea of a COVID-19 surcharge that some businesses are instituting. And they're doing this for a variety of reasons. Maybe they're trying to make up revenue because they can only have half the number of people in their stores or restaurants. Maybe they're doing it to offset the cost of having to buy personal protective equipment for their employees. Regardless, there are a lot of people, though, who are not happy about it. The Fleetwood Business Improvement Association says they have received complaints about this. So we wanted to talk more about this. Executive President of the Fleetwood BIA is Dean Barber, and he joins us now. Good morning, Dean. 
Good morning, Simi. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. So what are you hearing from businesses out there? Well, it was funny because yesterday morning I was driving into work and my phone was was lighting up with people asking me about this new tax. And I caught it kind of caught me off guard. So when I got into the office and started exploring it, that's when I learned that uh, people were going into their appointments that they'd scheduled you know, weeks in advance to get their hair done or get their nails done or whatever. And there was an added charge and it was called a surcharge. It wasn't something embedded. It wasn't something hidden. It was called a COVID-19 uh, uh, surcharge. And that got me concerned. Okay. So concerned because you were hearing from clients, customers? Yes, from customers and people that I knew in my network who were going out and very excited to get their hair done or, or whatever they were getting done. And, uh, and that raised, uh, like I said, it raised a red flag for me. Yeah, and you, you sent out uh, an email to a lot of the businesses as well saying, let's talk about this. What kind of response did you get back? Well, when the pandemic started, you know, Fleetwood is a unique uh, area. And when when the pandemic started, we, the, the Surrey Board of Trade, the other BIAs and Chambers of Commerce got together and said, look, we got to work together and support the businesses. Fleetwood, though, as downtown centers and downtown cores were closing up and boarding up, Fleetwood was 80% open with a lot of uh, essential businesses. So we were always in contact uh, with the businesses. And as we prepared for phase two, one of the things we said to the businesses, knowing who was possibly going to open was start planning now, start investing now in the things that you're going to need and start connecting with your, your, your clients Start booking appointments for, at the time, June 1st, and, and reach out to us if we can do something. But at no point in time did the idea of a surcharge or now on social media, they're calling it a COVID-19 tax. I, I did not expect that. Oh, you didn't think the businesses were going to do that? No, what I, what I told people to do, and when people would ask me, but how are they going to recoup these costs, you embed it in your fees. People know that, uh, you don't have to tell the general public that you're struggling. I think people know that. And people will pay more for great service and great comfort. My daughter got her hair cut the other night, and when I took her to the, uh, or picked her up from getting her hair done, and she spent a lot of money, the way, the feel, the peace of mind of being in that place, I was willing to pay a lot more for that comfort and peace of mind, as well as the hair, the hair, right. the hairstyle, and and that's I think how people have to pursue the, the pursue their business. Putting a negative label on and uh, on a on a line item on an invoice is just yeah, it's not in my opinion it's not the way to do business. You can put that if it's seven dollars, put it into your fee, just put it in there, right. and I think people will understand. Yeah, so you think people if I go to pay and my haircut's a little bit more money, I you're right. I would probably just go, well, that's just the cost. It's a little bit more money, understandable, but to call attention to it by calling it a COVID-19 surcharge, you think that's the problem? Well, absolutely, Simi. This was day one of phase two reopening, and it's the number two news item on the news. And it's the news item not because of the surcharges, because people complained about it. And if if, if people are complaining, it's a, it has a negative impact on business. And what happens nowadays on social media is it becomes yeah. this COVID nineteen tax. And I had a I had a question on 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 my social media page other, uh, last night saying, "Well, who did this? Is this the province, a provincial tax, or a, or a municipal tax?" Well, it's not a tax, but it's already out there now. Right. And so for customers, and the comments that I've been getting from a lot of people this morning is that I've done my best to support local businesses throughout all of this and now get hit with this. And don't you think it's also going to impact, if you're talking about salons and restaurants, well, that just means people are going to end up tipping less. Well, and that's the other side of it as well. It's going to have an impact on the employee who's doing the work or the stylist who's doing the work and, and, who, 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 and, and even the restaurant who shares tips or t- with the cooks and the bus 
provisions, it, it will have a negative impact down the line. I don't think, like I said earlier, I think I think it's important as we go get into this phase two and we start reopening slowly and and it's, it's important that everyone have empathy and, and, and have respect and, and be transparent on this. And if someone, if you go into a place and that you, you notice that from three months ago the price went up, you can ask That's the fine. To, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think I think we're prepared as a society that we know that we're going to have to go through this. I, I laughed because last night I was talking to a, a colleague and, and said, "Do you remember with the uh, when you used to go to the airport twenty five years ago and there was the airport improvement tax that was temporary." <laughs> yeah, that's still there, but now it's embedded in your ticket, and you don't you don't realize it's still there. Exactly, exactly. And so that, my question was, okay, so what happens now? Because it's called a COVID nineteen surcharge. Let's say we're in October or November. Where does that extra seven or eight dollars go? Is yeah. it do do we drop it, or is it now get embedded into the cost? If that's the case, then you've given yourself a lot of negativity. It's just embedded in the very beginning, at the very beginning, when no one's going to care about it. So what would you tell businesses, Dean, at this point? I mean, obviously, there is a lot of ramping up this week. There's a lot of things opening in the next week or two. What would be your recommendation? Recommendation number one is to, I I fully understand you've got to pass these costs on, and I'm 100% for that. I get that. But number one is don't do anything right now in the early stages that are going to jeopardize or put your business in a bad name. That The whole thing about publicity, uh, negative publicity is a good thing or, or any publicity is good publicity. In this time, it's not the time to get any type of negative publicity. And if you need to pass that cost on, then do it. Do it respectfully. Don't gouge people. Don't do anything that's going to make you look bad because in this day and age in social media, it will make you look bad. Do you anticipate any restaurants or any businesses perhaps changing their mind on this? Have you heard from any businesses like that? I've heard from a number of people. There's a, a one, one another executive director who owns a restaurant in Surrey. Um, they're putting a they're they're adding five percent cost on right across the board on everything that they're doing, uh, versus adding a line item on the surcharge. And what I've seen just in the, again, this is new to me. This is only thirty six hours or four, no, not even right. forty eight hours. But I think what we're going to be seeing is that people are going to be testing the waters right right across the board. And I want to encourage people who are looking at the op, that this idea of adding a surcharge charge or adding this tax not to do it just try to do something a little bit differently make people feel comfortable coming into your business all right dean thanks very much for that i'm sure we'll be checking back in with you on this obviously thank you okay that's dean barber the executive president of the fleetwood business improvement association talking about something that many people have raised our attention to that we've heard a lot more about in the last couple of days and that is the idea of a covid19 surcharge that some businesses are now applying and it's unfortunate as dean pointed out there that some people think it's a tax no government is not levying this at all it's not a government thing it is something that some businesses have chosen to do to try to recoup their additional costs of reopening, whether it's you know having to buy personal protective equipment or just the extra costs of doing business. You heard Dean Barber. He said he believes as a business owner and working in the Business Improvement Association, they should be doing this differently. They should be embedding those costs in the business, not making it so visible. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, as you also know, many surgeries were initially kind of canceled or postponed because of the COVID-19 pandemic. And that was a big concern for many people who had waited a long time for that knee surgery, that hip surgery, whatever the case may be. 
Well, now some of them are getting rescheduled, but there's a condition attached here. That's only if we don't see a spike in new cases of COVID-19. Now, Michael is a member of the Coquitlam Search and Rescue Team. He is waiting for a kidney transplant. His surgery date has now been rescheduled for the end of this month, fingers crossed, uh, but he needs those COVID-19 rates to stay low to make sure the surgery goes ahead. Now, Michael spoke to our Nikki Reitmeyer, who wanted to know, when when did he first learn that he needed this kidney transplant? Actually, about 20 years ago, around the time I joined the search and rescue team, and in fact, I discovered I had this disease called polycystic kidney disease, because I was doing first aid training with the team, we were learning how to take uh, blood pressure. And um, I had high blood pressure, and I'd never known that before. And the nurse told me to go get it checked out. And when I did, they discovered that it was caused by this disease, polycystic kidney disease. It creates um, cysts in your kidneys, and, and basically the main, uh, the main symptom is the high blood pressure. And so during the diagnosis, the doctor said, yeah, you have this disease and it usually leads to kidney failure. And um, most people who have kidney failure need a transplant. And at the time, he actually did a, a really accurate estimate. He said, based on the graph I'm seeing of how, how your GFR, your kidney function is declining, he said, I would, I, I'm guessing you'll need a kidney uh, transplant just to run your 50." He says, I give it until I give your kidneys until they're 50 and I'll be 50 in September. <laughs> wow. Eh? So the doctor says in the year 2020, you're going to need a new kidney. Lo and behold, he's right, which is incredible, except he wasn't able to predict that there was going to be this pandemic that could break out. Who could have guessed that? The things we don't have control over. I didn't. Ha- I don't have control over my genes and I don't have control over uh, what the pandemic's doing. <laughs> quite a, a curveball, that's for sure. It's already quite stressful, you know, going through kidney failure. But then, yeah, in the middle of the pandemic, it's a double whammy. Oh, man, eh? So it must have been a real relief when you found out earlier this year that, thank goodness, you had a match for an organ donor. Yeah. It, and to be honest, the, the amount of response that I got from the community um, and my, you know, my, my friends and family and the, and the search and rescue community, so many people had come forward to be tested. So in a lot of ways, last year was very heartening to me because when I asked people to come forward, so many people came forward and I thought, wow, I think things are going to be okay now. But, and, and of course, finding there was a match is a sense of incredible relief. Just the amount of generosity that comes from that person, you know, stepping forward and, and, you know, they get told that they're a match and they have to agree, right? Because, Everything's theoretical until somebody says, oh, you're the one. <laughs> and then you have to, that person has to knuckle down and decide whether, you know, really to go forward or not, you know? I'm just really curious. So uh, without, you know, giving me maybe her name and home address, <laughs> is there any information you can share about who your your kidney donor is? Is it a friend of yours? Yeah, no, she is. Uh, she's the wife of one of the members of our search and rescue team. You know, she's kind of you know, media shy, but she's she's fine with people knowing that and, and knowing you know that that she's out there. She doesn't want to be seen as a hero, <laughs> but to be honest, she is my hero. Wow, that's incredible! So you have this match, thank goodness. You are getting ready to do the transplant surgery, 
uh, and then all of a sudden a pandemic hits. Well, they hadn't given me a date yet, but they they'd mentioned that they were considering May or June. And then, um, of course, the pandemic hit, and I didn't really need to call them up and ask. But, you know, you hear on the news that all the all the surgeries are being canceled. It was dismaying because I'd been, you know, looking forward and, you know, with the uncertainty of how how would BC handle the pandemic. And to be honest, I'm also, I was also a bit worried because in people in kidney failure, they're considered immunocompromised. We're not able to fight off infections as well. So in a lot of ways, there's kind of this threat to your health in the background with kidney failure. And then there's this additional threat to your health of the pandemic. But to be, you know, the the way BC handled it, just, just the level of confidence and professionalism that the, the province did. And, you know, the media as well and putting the message out. And, you know, I saw people really working hard. It, it, it really made me feel good that, you know, we were we were tackling it in the best possible way. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that most people have been getting it. And Obviously, the proof of that is that you have uh, British Columbia and a number of other provinces who are now at that stage where they're getting ready to reopen. They're reopening bars and restaurants in the coming weeks. And we're getting to a stage where in certain provinces, we can start to increase the size of our social groups soon, according to what health officials are saying. What do you think about, say, increasing the size of our social groups, but at the same time balancing that there's a risk that we could see a resurgence in this virus? Well, they they were pretty clear and they told me that that my surgery was tentatively scheduled. And they did call me uh, two weeks back to say they were considering reopening and, and, and that I might be one of the people who got scheduled. And then they gave me a date. Uh, it all relies on, you know, I can't catch COVID-19, neither can my donor. And if they get a resurgence in cases, they will, they said they will cancel all of the surgeries. And it's worrying, right? You're, you're given a date, but it's like you've got this additional thing. And then the other details are, um, I might be in the hospital for five days and nobody can come visit me. Uh, my family can't come there. It's that level of support. You can't have that. And, uh, it just adds some additional stress, but. I'm really hopeful that, you know, people, people change so quickly to this, to protect other people. So I really feel that societies pull together. I feel very hopeful about our ability to make, make a change like this and to handle these big events. When things get tough, British Columbians come together and really, really pull for each other. I was so lucky to have the star community to come forward and kind of, you know, support me when I needed my kidney. And now it's like, it's almost like society is doing the same thing, right? It, it stepped up and it um, it just said, this is a tough problem. We need to fix this. It's a large scale version of what I went through last year when people wanted to donate their kidney to me. And I feel people are really doing their job, you know, people are pulling together. It's like pandemic spirit or something, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I like that. People, are, people start and end conversations with how are you doing, but you know, they really mean it now, you know? <laughs> Yeah, that's so true. Uh, when people at the end of a conversation now say, stay safe, and they really mean it. You can hear that people really mean it. Yeah. Before, you know, we might have just said, ah, take care. At the end of a conversation, you just kind of throw it in at the end. Okay, have a good day. Take care. But now you get the impression that people really mean it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Deep, deep, deep look into the eyes with the take care. Yeah. 
<laughs> well, hey, look, it was really lovely chatting with you. And please stay in touch because I'd love to hear how the surgery goes. Yeah, well, I check into the, uh, if everything goes right, I check into the hospital on the 27th early because they do a big co- they do a COVID test and screening before they put me in the ward. So the day before the surgery. And yeah, who knows after then, we'll see. <laughs> well, best wishes for the upcoming date. Uh, thank you again so much and I uh, hope everything goes well. Yeah, I sure, I sure hope so too. This is Mornings with Simi. So a lot of businesses are opening up this week, right? You probably notice that as you're walking by. Plywood has come down off all the stores kind of in downtown Vancouver. But there are still businesses out there that are choosing to stay closed, even though Phase 2 does technically allow them to open. Well, Innovative Fitness is a chain of training facilities in Metro Vancouver. and They're not planning to open until next month. So we thought, Let's find out why. Joining us now is the CEO of Innovative Fitness, Curtis Christofferson. Curtis, thanks so much for being here. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. So where are you guys at with Innovative Fitness? When are you planning on reopening? Yeah, so our plan right now is is to take it slow and, and uh, give it a little time to breathe. I mean, you know, restrictions just got elevated on Friday, and we're looking at early June. So June 1st is, is our plan date to open unless something else changes up. Okay, and what are you putting into place to make that happen? Yeah, I mean, it's a new new way of doing business, that's for sure. Yeah. We've got a lot of new policies, and, and obviously some of them are, are meeting the needs of, of the health authorities and WorkSafe BC, but um, other ones are just precautionary measures. So we have, you know, screen processes with our clients, with our employees. We have, you know, and which includes thermometer checks at the door. We have waivers, obviously, part of that screen process to make sure they don't have any symptoms of COVID-19. And then we have, within the studios, we have everything from plexiglass barriers uh, with the reception and the front desk staff, all the way to, you know, separated areas within the training facilities to make sure that we respect the social distancing uh, measures. Right. That sounds like a lot of work, though, for you and the employees. Yeah, and it's a little bit different, right? It's uncomfortable because it's something new. So, you know, even with employees, we have face shields, uh, which obviously we'd love to do masks, but... You can't really coach people under a mask that well. So, you know, the face shields even will be uh, uncomfortable at first, but we got to respect, obviously, what everything's put yeah. in place and, and the guidance, and, and we're trying to do that. So so what, what has the staff told you? Are they anxious to come back to work? Because obviously I think some staff members would also have concerns. Yeah, I think it's, it's a very similar uh, message that we're getting from staff as we are getting with the clients. You know, we polled our clients about two weeks ago, and 50% were ready to come back right away. 23% were unsure at this point, and the other 23% are interested just to stay, you know, providing or, or receiving our services virtually. So I think the same thing with our, our staff. I mean, staff are, uh, some of them are eager to get back. Um, they miss the community. They miss having dialogue with our coworkers, mm-hmm. and other ones are going to take it slower, or they've adjusted their lifestyle accordingly to provide virtual services anyways. So it's going to be challenging even when you do open, it sounds like. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely a puzzle, that's for sure. All right, we're going to check back in with you, I'm sure. Curtis, thank you for your time. Yeah, thank you. And good luck. That is the CEO of Innovative Fitness, Curtis Christofferson, uh, talking about how even though they're technically allowed to open now, they are putting it off for another month so they can implement a whole bunch of new measures, not just for their staff, but also for their clients. And as you heard Curtis say, some of the clients are also saying they're not sure they're ready to come back just yet. So it is going to be a process for a lot of businesses. 
This is Mornings with Simi. Now, I like to believe that tough times bring out the best in people. I think that's true. And we try to tell those stories, right, to keep people inspired. But unfortunately, we also know that tough times bring out the scammers. That's what our next story is about, actually, a scam that MP Don Davies would like people to know about. And he joins us now, the NDP MP for Vancouver Kingsway. Good morning. Good morning, Simi. So what is it that you've been hearing from some of your constituents? Well, it was drawn to our attention that there's a scam that's been directed at seniors in Vancouver at a couple of different seniors' residences where someone was approaching seniors and telling them that they could get them free money from the federal government in exchange for uh, taking 10% of it. Now, many of those seniors did not know that they were applying for the Canada Emergency Response Benefit or the CERB, and they didn't know that they likely didn't qualify for it. So, um, you know, with a potential $8,000, uh, they were subject to $800 of, uh, of money that they'd have to pay for this, and only to find out that later on they didn't qualify for it. In addition, they were being asked for, you know, very sensitive information like the social insurance number and date of birth, which could expose them to identity fraud. So were they being asked this, uh, like, in person, or were they approached somehow? Like, do you know the details of how these how these scammers found them? Well, it was a combination. Um, they The scammer obviously knew someone in the senior's residence and, and uh, phoned them, and then they got their friends in the residence uh, to, to sign up as well. Uh, at one point, we, we thought there were about 77 seniors out of about 110 in the building that had been contacted what? and had agreed to do this. Yeah, That's a lot of people. Um, did some of them receive these checks? Uh, I think we caught it just in time uh, when we were alerted to it by uh, a concerned um, daughter of one of the, the residents. Um, along with Mabel Elmore, who's the MLA for Kensington, we actually went to the towers on the day that the scammer was supposed to appear and collect their first money, and uh, they didn't show up. We also involved the, the Vancouver Police Department and alerted uh, media to it, so I think that may have scared them off. Right, so are the police now investigating this? They are, but we're, we're also hearing that uh, there are people charging uh, people to access the survey in Ontario, so this is why this week I wrote Prime Minister Trudeau and I, I alerted him to this issue and asked that they close the loophole in the CERB legislation. I think that it should be um, illegal to charge anybody for accessing the emergency benefits. And I think if we eliminate the profit incentive, then we'll eliminate the scam possibility. Okay, and did you get any response to that? I haven't yet. Um, but it's early day. It was a couple of days ago that I wrote uh, the, the Prime Minister, but I was concerned when I, I discovered that it's happening nationally. And, of course, this is just what we're aware of. So um, I'm sure it's happening in other provinces. I'm sure it's happening more. And it's taking advantage of right. vulnerable folks, particularly seniors. So I think we have to... Uh, uh, really put a stop to this very quickly. In the beginning, do you think, Mr. Davies, that like it, it just seemed like the people wanted the money, government was trying to get the money into their hands as fast as possible, and now that it's been like a couple of months, we can stop and go, might have been too easy. Well, it is very easy, that's for sure. Um, and this is part of why I think you shouldn't be allowed to charge a fee, because um, you really have to just go online and answer three or four questions, provide a little bit of information, and, and that's it. So there's really no basis to charge someone 
you know, uh, I think it was $160 per application every two weeks in Ontario, or to charge someone $800 right. out of 8000 for this. Um, but uh, the other thing, of course, is people can get free service uh, through their MPs' offices or through um, um, through a government hotline. So um, it is an easy process. We want to make it convenient for people because we, we know people are desperate and we need to get cash into their hands quickly. So we don't want to jeopardize that need um, because there are unscrupulous people out there who will take advantage of people. Right. Also, wouldn't was there anything that would have flagged these applications? The fact that they were applying and they, were, they live in a nursing home, wouldn't they have also been of a more advanced age? And wouldn't that have flagged these, appl- these applications? Well, it could, except for there are some seniors uh, who do work part-time, and if they made over $5,000 in the previous oh, 12 months yeah. or 2019, then they could qualify. But the people that we were talking to, none of them fell in that category. So so they didn't realize that they were being asked to apply for something. They just thought that they got emergency money and uh, seniors are struggling. So um, that's why I think this is a particularly, um, well, frankly, disgusting scheme targeting vulnerable people like that. Is there then also a heightened concern that come tax time next year, they're going to be dinged for this? Well, exactly, because... You know, once the application is there and the money's in the bank account and the scammer has received their money, they're gone. So next year when the seniors do their taxes or if they're audited, it will be discovered at that point they didn't qualify and they'll have to pay back the 2000 4000 maybe $8,000, but they'll be out there, uh, the fee that they paid and out the money at the end of the day as well. And maybe not even in a position to pay back the money if it's spent. Right. So will you be continuing to pursue this with the federal government? Absolutely. Yeah, I've already raised it uh, with my uh, my colleagues who are responsible for seniors, and we're going to raise it in the House of Commons as well. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm going to follow up with the Prime Minister because a simple, simple change to the legislation that that makes it uh, illegal to charge people for applying for such a simple benefit in an emergency situation, I think will end the matter. All right, well, we'll follow up with that. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for your interest. Really appreciate it. That's Don Davies, the NDP MP for Vancouver Kingsway, raising concerns about what he's heard in his constituency, and that is uh, numerous seniors who were approached to live in a nursing home there to apply for what they didn't realize was the Canada Emergency Response Benefit. They were told it was benefit for seniors, some money that the government uh, could give them, and they, of course, it sounded good, right? And so they did it, and as you heard, it is a scam there. So, yeah, there need to be some changes for situations like that, for sure. If you want to weigh in, Simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. We like to always point out new and interesting stories of people that are adapting right, in this pandemic situation. Innovation has been amazing out there, just incredible. We wanted to highlight another one of those stories for you this morning. Barrelwise is a company, a technology company, that actually works in wine production, but... Right now, they're focused on a decontamination project instead. So the co-founder of BarrelWise is David Summer, and he joins me now with more on this. Good morning, David. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. So tell me, how do you use the technology in wine production? How does that work? Uh, Well, our technology, um, as you probably know, wine spends about one to two years aging in an oak barrel before it goes to bottle. And our system can connect to each of these oak barrels and add wine to replace wine that's evaporated through the wood. Mm-hmm. 
And the system can also take a wine sample from the barrel and analyze it. And it gives the winemaker information about the health of the wine and flags that barrel if it requires any intervention. And that just helps the winemaker try to optimize the quality uh, of their wine. That's kind of cool because I would guess that back in the day you had to wait until you kind of opened that barrel and tasted the wine. Yeah, exactly. And a, a lot of our customers have tens of thousands of barrels of wine, and it's not really logistically feasible for them to go around tasting every single one. So our system right. tries to bring that kind of uh, small-scale artisanal wine quality to uh, these larger facilities. I like it. Okay. And so how has that, what you do, then how has your company kind of pivoted in this COVID-19 situation? Yeah, well, around mid-March when this all started, <clears throat> our engineering team was looking for a way to help contribute in some way. And we were looking into how PPE is used in hospitals and elsewhere in the community uh, and really thought that developing a way that we could safely reuse some of this limited supply would be a good way for us to contribute. Uh, so as we started looking into decontaminating PPE, we found a lot of similarities between our winemaking products uh, and the technology that was going to be helpful in order to decontaminate the N95 masks, Okay. Uh, specifically using heat and humidity to kill off the virus. And we found that our experience developing sanitary food-safe equipment and controlling processes and quickly designing and deploying these new products that we've gained through our experience with winemakers, uh, we were able to leverage that and repurpose a lot of our existing technology, actually, uh, and transfer it into this new system really quickly. Okay, so you've been... Now what you've been doing then is decontaminating sort of like health products? Yeah, so specifically N95 masks. So we've uh, we've created a decontamination chamber where we can carefully control the temperature and the humidity inside. And it's a small uh, desktop unit about the size of a, a mini bar fridge that can just sit on the counter, say, in a, a dental office or doctor's office or, or someone that's going to be going through this PPE uh, quickly. And uh, when you're done using your N95 mask, you can place it inside the decontamination oven and just push a button and we'll carefully control the temperature and humidity and that deactivates the virus and the mask can be safely reused about 30 minutes later. That is so cool. This thing must be pretty popular right now. Uh, yeah, well, we're just finishing it off and going through the Health Canada approval process. Uh, we've been working with the aerosol laboratory at UBC and the School of Population and Public Health to make sure it's um, really thoroughly tested and, and working well. And uh, we're also just working right now to um, to get it deployed in the community as quickly as we can. Oh, I love hearing about it. Well, David, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Well, thanks for having me.